welcome back to the Learning Experience Lab and thanks for your patience over our brief hiatus as the tumultuous return of the autumn term settles down. If you're new to the show, then an extra warm welcome. I'm your host, Dan Hassan, and this podcast, made possible by Feedback Fruits, has been exploring the insights and innovations in higher education over the past year. And today we're featuring a conversation with our very own Max Taraf, who was keen to share his knowledge on trends in higher education before he'll be embarking on a quest around the United States to meet with dozens of innovative colleges and universities. Lucky chap. Now, in previous episodes, we've looked at both personal stories and research, as well as some broader frameworks at play in the world of instructional design. My desire with the coming series is to look at some of those elements at a larger scale. And that word scale is something I'm still trying to figure out as it's got an awful lot of meanings. It's what covers fish and lizards. It's the action of climbing a steep surface. And it's what I'm afraid of stepping on in the morning after a big dinner. But more importantly, it's what educational institutions are doing at various stages to apply the lessons learned and continue the innovation forcibly initiated during one of the most transformative periods in education yet. With no two regions, institutions, classes or activities being the same, how can we ensure consistent, effective learning design at all levels? And with stakeholders being variously instructors, designers, directors, but also students and future employers, what is the common objective that education needs to deliver now and in the future? This is how I've been thinking about scale and I'm definitely not set on a definition, but in any case, it's a theme I'll be revisiting throughout this series. And that'll be firstly in the sense of geographical scale in conversation with Max, who'll introduce himself now before we saunter into it. My name is Max, Max de Graaf in Dutch. I've been from day minus one here at Feedback Fruits involved in business development. That's my core project. Uh, I've been doing that for three and a half years with a lot of fun, a lot of ups, a lot of downs also, of course. But yeah, that's it. I mean, like I started uh, reaching out to business schools in, uh, in Europe in uh, early 2018. Currently, my projects are with the APEC region, uh, but also working now with a small team here, um, trying to find ourselves some lighthouse accounts in Europe and obviously everything related to the US. And I got some side projects also. So I'm also working with the Ministry of Education in Israel, working with a few institutions in South Africa, even in contact with the university in Ghana. So those are just some little side projects just to see like, what are they doing, right? Like what is their appetite in terms of digital learning? I think Israel is very, very interesting because when you look at Israel, it's an, it's, it's, it's an industry, it's a market, it's a region where they really want to go um, to the point that the Ministry of Education actually is, I wouldn't say forcing, but really incentivizing institutions actually take the next step in terms of digital learning and digital pedagogy. Um, the only problem is, is that and that's what they also explained to me is where ed tech companies are sometimes a little bit hesitant to enter into the market and really invest in it also because the market really requires some investments in terms of language with Hebrew, of course, platforms, and they intend to read from right to left instead of left to right, which is yeah quite intensive in terms of product development. Hebrew, yeah, you've got to support Hebrew, but I mean, like, it's just a very small market, of course. I mean, like if you want to change your platform to English, I mean, like, that makes sense. Spanish also, but Hebrew is a little bit different. So with that in mind, does it make sense for one company to try to scale their solution to all these different sorts of needs when, for this example, an Israeli edtech institution might better be able to understand that market and have a positive impact there? I mean, like we have to. I mean, like all those students also, we also need to work towards a better learning experience for them. From a mission standpoint, yeah, I mean, like we need to, but at the same time, the amount of impact that we can have in that market 
is relatively small compared to the investments that we have to make. That brings us to the question of how do you determine where you're maximizing the impact? You might want to talk about this with Yoast, of course, as our head of product. I mean, like he's the one that determines how our roadmap looks like. But I mean, if you have to make a decision to translate your platform into Spanish or you have to translate it into Hebrew, I mean, like it's an easy decision because the amount of Spanish students that could use it is a lot more than the Hebrew students. I mean, you just have to look like how, how applicable is it? That's how we look at our Dutank projects. That's how we look at an institution. I mean, like when you look at Australia, the impact that I have when working with Monash for a year and a half and then having them enter into a partnership where about 90,000 students have access to our technology, the impact there is a lot bigger than when we look at a smaller institution that has 500 students or 1,000 students. I mean, like the impact difference is huge. So. That's how I like being very pragmatic. That's one way of looking at investment in terms of impact. Do we have particular ways of addressing, for instance, peer assessment better in one region than another? I mean, like we can look at in terms of like, how easy is it to enter the market? Another way of looking at it is like, what is the difference that you're making? All right, let's just compare US to Australia because it's relatively easy, right? When we're looking at the Australian region in terms of like what these institutions are worried about in terms of self and peer assessment, is that they're very much worried about how authentic the feedback and the assessment is. And that is something that I'm a great fan of, because if you do self and peer assessment or assessment in general or feedback in general, those practices, they need to be from the person and they need to be on the content, but they need, there needs to be constructive alignment, of course, between learning outcomes, learning activities, assessment activities. And I think that Australia, there is way ahead of what is happening in the US, because I think in the US, everybody understands that peer feedback is important. But the next step after peer feedback, peer assessment is what they sometimes find difficult. One big thing that I find difficult in the US is where faculty or, or instructional designers, they really want to use feedback fruits because they want to do authentic feedback and they don't even call it authentic, but they want to do it feedback practices. But then the moment where, let's say you and me then, right? You give me feedback, right? Now, the problem is here is that that feedback process is more intended for the faculty member than it is for me. That these faculty members, they actually prohibit me from seeing the feedback that you've given to me. Because they're like, no, because that's 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 scary. And like, how did these students provide feedback to each other? Is it authentic? Is it like, they might say bad words to each other. And, and is then, that something that you have to let institutions figure out for themselves? No, but that's it. I mean, like, but, but besides that it is intended for the student, it provides it provides a skill that is needed for the rest of your life. I mean, like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm 30. I still find it difficult to cope with feedback if it's provided to me. I mean, that's my girlfriend. I mean, like, she gives me feedback every once in a while and, <laughs> and I, I take it the wrong way. I mean, like, we have to educate our students as early as possible. I mean, like, I've been, I, I talked about this, I think, with, with uh, someone from Texas Tech University. And, and they were like, yeah, but we're not even, we're not even, not even just doing it in undergrad. We're going to implement this in K-12 because these students, they need to know how you provide feedback, but more important, how to receive feedback. I mean, like, and that, that pockets of innovation, that makes me run. Is that something that's going to become a bigger part of education? 100%. 100%. And you're seeing it already. And again, like, like I'm a big fan of everything that happens in Australia because they're, in my opinion, 10 to 15, at least 10 years ahead of, of at least compared to Europe and US. I mean, like they're focusing, they're, they're transitioning mostly due to COVID, into career-ready skills. These students, they need to be ready for the career. Yeah. So a core component of that is feedback, how to provide feedback, to receive feedback. Like that transition is now being finalized. It's, it's defined even in strategic plans. And whatever framework you put it under, lifelong skills, 21st century skills, communication, collaboration, and teamwork processes are getting much more attention. So how yeah. do you make people see the value of it? To be honest, 
not <laughs> there are a lot of people that don't like me for it because of my style. But the moment that a faculty member tells me like, yeah, I'm going to withhold the feedback. I just ask him why. Yeah. And then there comes use nine out of 10 times. There comes a fuzzy story mm. and I just uh, two three more why questions. And then when they don't get it, I'm like, all right, that's, that's your choice. What are some of the reasons you come across them? And basically the, 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 the biggest reason I said before, right. It's the, I'm a, I don't want students to see their feedback because I cannot guarantee that it's not going to be bad language. And so it's about trust. Trust in their students, yes. Like the biggest thing still in, again, the majority of US institutions, in my opinion, and is where the faculty member is still the most important person in a course, mm. where they are still seen as, hey, I'm the most important person. I'm gonna teach them how it is, instead of looking at it more from a 21st century perspective, like, hey, now the faculty member is the coach where they facilitate the learning process. Yeah, an exchange more, of information rather than a one-way transmission. Exactly, where it's really that, that the, collab, the collaboration that fosters the learning process instead of the, the, the listening to the expert. Maybe another way we could talk about feedback here is automated feedback. You had a few comments on Yoast had said at the last episode. What's your view of the value of automated feedback position and its implications for the future? I mean, like, I'm, I'm quite proud of, of where we are with the technology and what what it brings, but if we can take that to the next level, ensuring that not only feedback is rapid, but it becomes more insightful every every rotation, the more you can scale. So because you can scale, you can scale quality instead of quantity, because that's what's been doing in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. We were scaling quantity in universities, but now you can really scale quality because we all know the more feedback, the more personalized feedback that is given to someone, the better they learn. Because if it's something that they have done, you're more inclined to actually listen to it and understand and trying to understand because it's, it's feedback that's been provided to what something you did. So I wrote a paper. If now I'm getting personalized feedback on something I did, I'm more inclined to read it than just reading like a general review of something. Right. I look at it from a different way, which is a, from the perspective of a grammar Nazi that on a purely pedagogical and individual basis, if a student or a teacher doesn't have to get distracted with the extra cognitive load of punctuation, stylistic, semantic, grammatical, structural formatting inconsistencies, then their attention is just able to go onto it. So you've mentioned how that can be scaled, but yeah, I've looked at it in a very kind of individual way that it just makes that feedback process for mm -hmm. the process itself, the mechanism through which mm -hmm. you can give feedback an easier process. So it's part of a bigger feedback process. It's leading onto something. And that's the ability of the actual human in the picture to give higher order feedback on the content and argumentation, right? That's it. I mean, like I did, I did something fun the other day, right? So because I was speaking with an institution in the US and they were quite interested in the automated feedback part, but they had some hesitations, right? Because they were like, yeah, but how can we guarantee quality? And basically what you're saying, right? Like removing those easy to give feedback practices, like indeed like punctuation and like, did they put the correct name to the figure, et cetera. Yeah. And then I was like, right, so how am I going to prove this person on, on a data driven basis that this actually is the case like yeah. in real life? So what I do, I looked at uh, one of our other tools, assignment review. It's where teachers provide feedback to work. Basically what automated feedback does, but then in a manual way. Yeah. So one of the functionalities in, in assignment review, that, that specific tool, is where a teacher can actually copy a... Uh, reuse a feedback. a feedback comment. Yeah, reuse a feedback. That's the word I was looking for. So I actually looked at a, a, a relatively big assignment. I think there were like 150, 200 students in the course. And there was this one teacher that basically reused in 80% 
of the reviews, this same comment, 80%. So 80% of the time he clicked on use previously used review comments. We've made it easier for him to reuse that instead of typing out manually, but wouldn't it be better if he didn't have to use it in the first place? Right. And that was just on basic things. It was something basic like, hey, look at the structure. The structure should be like this, not as how you set it up. And I know the structure is a little bit more complicated. Like that will, It's not something that automated feedback can already cover. But let's say automated feedback can cover that. Like when it can analyze the structure, it can analyze like, hey, a paper like this should be structured as follows, something like that. If we can actually make automated feedback do that, then you can save so much time for the teacher, which is important, of course, but let's look at it from a student perspective. The student gets automated feedback directly about their specific piece. They're like, hey, X and Y, I should actually swap it around. Hmm. I mean, like, you don't have to wait four weeks, five weeks to get your paper back, even if it's just one week, because you've been doing three other courses at the same time, which I don't agree with either, by the way. But yeah, and that's the biggest difference that I see in other edtech vendors compared to feedback fruits hmm. is where we're not just looking for a solution that 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 some technologies fixes a issue. Is because of our Duten concept, we can actually look at it from a pedagogical perspective. Like, hey, what does the pedagogy require instead of technology? Yeah. And that is, and that's also why, why we've made things that didn't really work because the technology would have been too complicated to actually make sure that the pedagogy worked. But by trying and by looking at it from different perspectives and just being agile and just like, all right, let's jam a tool out in six months and see what happens. I think that that came to great results. Comprehension, for example, is my favorite yeah. tool. On the product release review today, we looked at the automatic oh, yeah. feedback coach. All right, there's one thing that we that we need to be careful of, and that is, mm -hmm. I love the feedback coach, really, I do. I think it is, it's the next step, like what we started discussing, right? Like the process of providing feedback, providing feedback depends like, hey, your feedback, the, the, what I'm writing about Dan right now, like is it constructive, mm -hmm. is it positive? Am I explaining myself? Am, am, am I making it actionable? Yes, 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 all right, fair point. But now my my worry a little bit with the feedback coaches is that if we develop it in such a way that it becomes a replacement of a student thinking for themselves, that's something that worries me a little bit. And we're not doing that on purpose, but I just hope that we're not we're not making the technology too good, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to talk about the relationship between edtech institutions and students. And also something that comes up in, in wording every day for me, when I see allusions to, we make teaching easier, we make feedback easier. I don't like that phrasing and I'm not happy with that because it's not about making a process easier or increasing one metric of completion or success. You have to look at a more holistic picture of what is the value gotten out of that process rather than did it go well and they got the tick. I know, but that's the whole point. We should, like an easier, I mean, like when you explain easier as being like, hey, the process itself, mm. we make intuitive and easy to use, then I'm 100% correct. But the process itself, we should actually make it a little bit more difficult. We should make sure that these students actually find it more difficult to provide a peer feedback activity with feedback fruits. Because if we challenge them enough so that they start thinking more than if they, they would have to do it on paper, that's the differentiator. Yeah. Because when I was studying, we also did a peer feedback activity back in the day. That was in my during my bachelor's. All right, we had to look at this report that this other group made, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we looked at it and basically our teachers asked us like, hey, write three things down that you like and write three things down that you didn't like. I was done in 10 minutes because I found three things that I liked. I found three things that I didn't like. But how is that challenging my beliefs? Because it's a very easy, easy to do task. 
I mean, they're actually implementing feedback fruits in their courses now, which is really fun. Uh, but I, so I sat down with the same teacher. I'm like, hey, remember what I did five, six, seven years ago? Let's do it like this. And now I sat with him for an hour and a half thinking about his rubrics. At first, he didn't want to do a rubric because he was like, yeah, that's a lot of work and whatnot. It's like, all right. And then I asked him, like, but just think about it. Because you have to make sure that these students, when you ask them, like, hey, evaluate the structure of this report, that is not just like give it a six out of 10 or tell you what, what you like about it. No, you need to tell them also what is a very good structure, what is a very bad structure, and then let them think about what does that mean for this structure. So if you yeah. give them What's a What's the reason for that? Exactly. It's like, like, how can you evaluate success if you don't know what success looks like? And that is what a rubric is doing, right? That's why you have criteria so yeah. that you know whether the learning objectives have been met in the first place. Yeah, but also like to make it critical because if you give it a four out of five and that means good, then you have certain requirements that accomplish with good. But now your students, you, 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 as a student, you cannot just put in good because- Without knowing you, what good means. Exactly. So you have to go back into the, in, into the paper and look at it like, all right, requirement one, pass. Requirement two, no. Requirement three, Yes, so that means two out of three. So we have to go back one step or it's fine enough. Like depends how you look at it. And that's that mental process. That's a differentiator if you ask me. Yeah, and that mental process is very much more in the pedagogy than the example of feedback that I have from my personal life, which mm -hmm. before in a world before feedback fruits, uh, online feedback activities required the use of four or five different pieces of software to download, share, edit, upload, export, and then be able to read that feedback and mm -hmm. so the difficulty of the process wasn't in thinking critically about how I'm going to give a constructive comment to my peer based on their work or skills, but how many different tabs do I need to open up and what's the most effective way to switch between them. And then for the teacher, of course, to compile and analyze that data among various spreadsheets, which also need to be downloaded, viewed. It's yeah. an exhaustive, cumbersome process. I think when you're making the part of the process difficult, which is the the pedagogy and the challenge to the mental and critical thinking of the student rather than the, the, the procedural, the administrative parts, yeah. And that's, and that's what I think we, we can be quite good at. And that's also why our partners, they appreciate it. And our, our, the teachers appreciate it, also the students, because the administrative part of it, that's straightforward. Now, the pedagogical part of it, that's the difficult part. And that's what they should. All right, let me explain in the following way. I think it was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs once said, right, because he, he always used to wear the same clothing, the same turtleneck collar, the same thing. I think my director did it also, basically, when I was like 18, 19, director at the time of the company I was working. He always had the same white shirt. He always had the same pants and the same shoes. And then I heard the story from Steve Jobs. I went to my director. I was like, hey, are you doing the same thing? And he was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're always wearing the same clothes. He said, he told me, I do that because that means I don't have to think about it. Every Monday, every Wednesday, every Friday, and then Tuesday and Thursday also, I wear the same thing. So my mental capacity remains for the difficult decisions I have to make on a day-to-day -day basis. That's exactly what we do at Feedback Fruits. We make sure that those clothes are sorted. You don't have to think about it anymore. So the mental capacity that you have in your brain, you can actually use to learn. I never thought you were going to give an example that would relate to fashion, but... There we go. You Are you saying that me. I'm not fashionable then? Is that it? We're both 
dressed in exactly the same way, Max. So <laughs> any comment to you would be a comment to all of us. <laughs> Thank you so much. Indeed, I'm wearing a feedback fruit sweater. Represents. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> all right. I've been trying to get a general picture of the differences, similarities in edtech, regional scalability. And so we can talk about how important feedback is and how it was being noticed by institutions worldwide, but implemented yeah. and valued in different ways. Mm -hmm. As well as feedback, have you got other examples of how that can happen, that things are implemented, but in different ways and to different outcomes? Like when I started in this industry three and a half years ago, like, to be honest, I never thought that I would set one step in a university after I've graduated. My, my, my experience was horrible, like all along was horrible. And yet you came back to work with education again. Yeah, that's because of Avout. Because I met him, like I was introduced to him, so I, we had a beer. <laughs> and then I said, it will never work for you. He's like, why? So I basically, and that was one month after my graduation. So I just, for 10 minutes, I gave him everything that was horrible. You know what he said? He said, you're perfect, come work for me. <laughs> I'm like, why? He said, because you're frustrated. So use your frustration actually to inspire people. I'm like, all right, I'll try, <laughs> why not? And here we are. <laughs> yeah. No, but what, what I was trying to say is like three and a half years ago, I had no clue because I was just talking to people. I had no clue. I just, I needed to figure out like, what are you guys doing? Like, what do you worry about on a day-to-day -day basis? And for two years, I still didn't get it because everybody was saying something different. Like, all right, so this, these are your challenges. That's interesting. These are your challenges. But then COVID happened, right? And then everything collapsed. Like all of my conversations, all of the institutions I was working with were like, I don't have time for any innovation mm -hmm. anymore because I just need to make sure that everybody knows how to log into my LMS. Mm -hmm. Literally, there was... <laughs> There's one gentleman, I'm not going to name him, at a university in New York, also not going to name it. And two weeks after basically COVID collapsed, and I get in a call with him, right? And I'm like, we need to stop conversations, I think. And he's like, yeah, we should. I'm like, why? I'm like, I know, but why? And he's like, it's really bad. I'm like, what do you mean? And then he told me that he now realizes that over 50% of his faculty members, they didn't know how to long in a canvas. Like over 50%. He's like, my super intelligent instructional designers are on a day-to-day -day basis hosting workshops on which button to click just to log in. And then he didn't even tell me. And then I had my Zoom issue because now I need to tell everyone how to use Zoom. It was that bad. But the best thing is now COVID happened, right? So now I, I started fresh because everybody was at the same level, at mm -hmm. least in my opinion. Yeah. But now after COVID, I can, now we can really see the differences, right? right? Like with, where are specific regions focusing on? And the fun part is like Australia, they're still very much into self-impaired assessment. Of course, now more into authentic, uh, authentic feedback, authentic assessment, yeah. um, career ready skills, but also the use of AI. Like they're really ahead of the pack also in terms of data, data insights, like uh, University of South Australia, for example, I mean like what they're doing with the LMS and with their ed tech is mind blowing. Like I'm so, super impressed. But then interestingly enough, oh, by the way, you really mm. want to have a podcast on, on the block model from Victoria University. I'll, I'll, I'll do it together with Michael Sturmey. Um, what they're doing, that's in my opinion, like that's, that's, that's the educational model where I'm in love with. But okay. Block model, that, all right. This is, this, is, this is the future in my opinion, but okay. we'll touch upon that. No, so that's, that's basically the APEC region in my opinion, yeah. right? Now, when we're looking at, all right, I'll first do Europe. I think in general, Europe is the furthest behind in terms of like digital practices, digital learning. They're very much still fo like focused on instructional teaching yes. and learning. So yes. Sitting. Lecture. Yes. Like the teacher is still super important, right? Like they need to learn from the teacher. But 
they're moving like finally like after all these years they're moving they're understanding like but the pedagogical practices that they want to implement now are still relatively basic in my opinion it's like flipping the classroom it's like mm-hmm. blended learning um and that's and that's very good like i'm very happy that this, this transition is happening now but that's predominantly what they're doing in my opinion but what do you think I would say that it's very recognizable with European institutions to have a more transmissive than transaction style. The mm-hmm. exception to that was my now a little bit dampened down shock that after coming to the Netherlands, I would address my professors by their first name. And I wonder how that is in the rest of um, Europe, because I know that, yeah, it can differ. But I do see that as an illustration of where it's more progressive even if um, adoption of pedagogical innovation is oh, but hundred percent, like like really, like I'm I'm just talking mainstream, right? Like when you look, like there's so many like very 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 innovative ways of of, of doing pedagogy in, in Europe. Like just look at comprehension. Like it's one of our tools. I mean, like the pedagogy behind comprehension is is I think one of the favorite one of my favorite pedagogies that we support. Or look at Maastricht University. I mean, like they are one of the founders of problem based education. I mean, like our peer review and our group memory evaluation tool. They originated out of a Dutank project with Maastricht University. So I think that really, really shows how in Europe there are also very innovative pockets. I mean, mm-hmm. HFP Paris, for example, how they're transforming their courses to work towards digital pedagogy is something quite marvelous. Any more shout outs to European institutions you want to give? Yeah, of course. IE University in Spain, team-based learning. I mean, this is the new one. I mean, like that's that's the exact example of collaborative learning approaches which I personally are a real fan of. And now with our new tool, the new team-based learning tool, that that, that pedagogy came from, from IE. I mean, like they didn't design it from, from the basics, but they're the ones that basically, I'm sticking my neck out, we're gonna do this. And that, that mentality, that's very European. I'm sticking my neck out, I'm doing it anyway. Like that is something that you see less in US, for example. Yeah, and even though that pedagogy is from the 70s, if there's a way to do it in an innovative and applicable context-dependent way, then why not do it? But look, at, but think about it. I mean, like it's from the 70s and we still, and that's the ridiculous part of this industry. And my apologies for everybody who's listening that is like offended right now. But I mean, team-based learning, the pedagogy is from the 70s. We're in 2021. That's more than 50 years later. And now we're like, oh, team-based learning. How is that possible? Something that has been designed 50 years ago, we're still excited about it. That means that our, this industry has been basically standing still for so many years. I think you can find more illustrations to that point, honestly. I know. Okay, we talked about APAC and Europe, but let's go back to the US because you're planning a trip there soon. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, so I'm flying on. We're still uh, battling yeah. with like getting actually inside the country because uh, they they said we could enter by November 8th, but our first, first meetings with the University of Minnesota on November 1. So... We got a little bit of an issue, uh, but we we might have found a way, but we'll update you later when we actually made it. Otherwise, I'm going to be stranded in Toronto for two weeks. Right. Yeah, no, so we're, we're going to the U.S. And I'm, to be honest, like I'm super, super, super excited about the developments in the U.S. Because three and a half years ago, when you were talking to somebody about digital pedagogy, digital learning, like when we hit somebody that was actually like, oh, yeah, I really I really care about this. That was like one once every week. And now it's it, people are calling us. They're like on the phones. My inbox is like, yeah, we, I remember you. We need to talk right now. And that <laughs> that change. All right, I'll tell you one example. This was at Carlson School of Management from the University of Minnesota, mm-hmm. uh, an instructional designer over there. Like I know, like we know them now for a good three years. 
And I remember one of our first conversations where they're like, yeah, we need to implement self and peer, self and peer feedback. I'm like, sure, sure, of course you do. And um, he, uh, we were having some difficulties with finding enough faculty to, to run a pilot because everybody was a little bit scared and everybody's like, I don't need it. My course is all fine. Results are good, whatever. Now COVID came and um, I, get, I get on a call with, 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 with that instructional designer. We just, we, we just wanted to have a coffee, like online coffee. And he's like, Max, I'm not sure what's happening, but like all these people that were telling us like, I don't need it, I don't want it, are now like, oh, how did that work again? And like that difference, that's what we're seeing in the market. Like that difference where people are like 180 degrees spin. And I mean, the main difference where everybody's focusing on is like high flex, providing flexible learning environments, flexible learning paths, not just online. Like it's gonna be in a blended format. It's gonna be in an asynchronous, but also synchronous format. But I mean, like that change, that is also what, I, I wouldn't say what gets me out of bed every morning, but it is, it is something what makes me give a smile when I bike to the office every morning. And you're not just smiling because you want to go and rub their noses in it. No, because if I do that, then I'll be an arrogant prick. So. <laughs> um, any closing remarks, anything you want to say about the US? Or? I'm really that excited about what higher education is, is doing at the moment globally. The transition in making the unique selling point of university, the learning experience again, that is something that I'm just a big fan about. And I'm super excited to go to the US again. We're gonna be visiting about 30 to 40 institutions in five weeks. And that alone, like getting new insights and hope, hopefully inspiring a lot of people to rethink their course design. That is something that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm a little bit of a pedagogy nerd, I think. <laughs> well, it sounds like the holiday of a lifetime for a pedagogy nerd. <laughs> that's it i'm really looking forward to hearing your report back after you're back from the us yeah let's all right let's do that let's set that up thanks so much dad this was fun big thanks to max and best of luck to the team in the us if you're listening after almost two years without on-site visits i can imagine you're both bursting with energy to share with our partners and pilots over there and back over here in the netherlands Next time, we'll be featuring a conversation from design-based education author, researcher, and my former professor, Dr. Arte Bakker of Utrecht University. Incidentally, I was also asked to host the university's Teaching and Learning Lab Autumn Festival on the 12th of November, featuring a session with the very same Dr. Bakker, alongside many other innovators in the Dutch higher education sector, who also happen to be my former instructors. I'd love to invite any and all listeners to join this free online event. You can find a link to sign up in the description of this episode. And as always, if you had any comments, queries, or questions about this episode, or about what Max and Vlad are up to in the US, please don't hesitate to reach out on social media or email us directly. And thanks for joining us in the Learning Experience Lab. Until next time.